Welcome back to our third and final installment in this Points of Discussion podcast about hydratinitis superativa being treated aggressively. It's brought to you by Pedra's Acne, HS, and Focus Study Group. Moderating this next discussion is Dr. Irene Lara Corrales, and she is joined by Dr. Yasmin Krikorian and Dr. Izzy Andrews, both of whom you've heard from in previous episodes. If you hadn't had a chance to go listen, please go back and do so now. Before we begin, it's important to note that the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. It's my pleasure to introduce you once again to Dr. Irene Lara Corrales, who is moderating this discussion. She is the Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto and is a staff physician in pediatric dermatology at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. She is currently the Pediatric Dermatology Fellowship Director, and she also co-chairs the Acne and HS Focus Study Group. I'll turn it back over to you, Dr. Lara Corrales. So thank you so much for joining us for our third episode discussing management of HS in pediatric patients. So we're here now with Dr. Kirkorian and Dr. Andrews, and um, there are a few things that we still would like to kind of chat about and share our uh, experiences. And one is kind of, we are lacking consensus guidelines and uh, consensus guidelines for management of HS is something that uh, we have adult guidelines, but we're still lacking pediatric guidelines. Um, Do you think that this is something that we should be working towards to kind of put together in the next years? Um, What do you think is needed? Well, shameless plug for PEDRA, obviously, but I think some of that groundwork has already started. I think you do have very passionate and productive experts in the field of pediatric HS, which 10 years ago was not a field. Um, so I think we've definitely laid the groundwork to establish, you know, who's doing the work, where's the data coming from, who's gathering the data, what can we look at with the data that we have. So I think that it's, the, the seeds have certainly been planted for consensus guidelines. Do you think that there's any specific research that we're still lacking or that we should be seeking to complete to be able to improve the uh, knowledge that we currently have for the management of HS? I would like to know whether um, early treatment prevents disease progression. Now, I don't know how you're going to prove that, I guess, unless you have a control, but um, and that I don't know how ethical that would be. But um, I do think if we gave our biologics in the early stage disease, you know, to enough patients, we should be able to answer that. Um, so that's one question I have. I'd like to see drugs besides um Adalimumab be FDA approved because um, they don't work in all people. And, you know, drugs like infliximab, which are off label, I think can be more effective. They're weight based and so on. Um, and then I'd like people to do more work on um, lifestyle modification. I know I'm a broken record here, but how do you actually help people to do these things? Is there any evidence, um, or should we be using drugs like the weight loss medications that are FDA approved in adults in children? Um, in these diseases, does that is that going to work? 
Any other thoughts about that, uh, Easy? Yeah, you know, I think uh, a registry for HS patients, if that's possible for pedi obviously pediatric patients, would be good uh, at some point because that way we could sort of follow them over a long period of time and kind of monitor progress to answer some of these brilliant questions that Dr. Krikorian raised about, you know, whether or not weight loss is a central pillar to this. As we know, there's about 20% of patients with HS that have normal BMI. Um, do some of these medical, surgical, or, or you know, varying interventions last? Or it, and if they last, how long is the effect going to persist beyond treatment or treatment relapses? Um, you know, I think there's there's so much we don't know with kids because you know, getting them in is one thing, treating them is another, but then following them long term usually becomes difficult as they either age out of our clinics and then go into the sort of the adult dermatology world, um, having tried some of these you know aggressive or, or conservative treatments. So longitudinal studies, I think, are, are certainly in order um, to give us a better sort of um, baseline foundation awareness of what we're dealing with here. So one question that um, might be in some of our minds is, uh, do you think early diagnosis does make a difference in whether or not we decide to use aggressive versus non-aggressive treatments? Oh, no, absolutely. I, I am for, I, that, that, so as hard as it was for you, yes, I mean, it was hard for me too, because fortunately, a majority of the patients I do see don't come in for, you know, mild HS, they come in for something else. Like if I get a new patient with psoriasis, I'm looking in their armpits, I'm looking between the breasts and the legs, because I think there's that sort of cross relatedness to that. Mm -hmm. If I see a kid who has acanthosis nigricans and who's on you know, spironolactone for PCOS or something like that, I'm going to check the armpits for HS. I think a lot of times I'm able to find it early enough and then I do rely on those sort of non-aggressive therapies. Unfortunately, I think there's that sort of phase where it kind of calms down a little bit and maybe it stays stable for a while, but then there's just a regression and a progression of the disease. But no, I am not against a conservative approach at all. Um, I just think, you know, I think we're relying on our ability to get access to these kids a little too much mm -hmm. um, because it's not even the fact that they, they don't seek medical help when it starts or when it's asymptomatic. It's just, like I said before, they're seeing doctors who are calling it acne of your armpit or, you know, folliculitis or, you know, abscesses and let's drain them and put it in a drain because you've got an infectious abscess. I mean, I think all of these things just kind of compound it further so that when they finally do see one of us, you know, it's already beyond some of these conservative treatments, but there's rarely a PEDS patient, regardless of their level of severity. I don't put on BP wash, topical clindamycin and like a topical retinoid if I see the tombstone and com comedone. So, and I think there's, you know, multiple levels of, of treatment that you could do at the same time, but then there's some things you can't do at the same time, obviously like oral antibiotics and isotretinoin and stuff like that. So another kind of question that we could ask is, what do you think has brought HS to the forefront in research right now? Like, why are we paying more attention to HS? Well, I will say briefly, and I think Irene, you could probably correct me because you probably, I'm, I'm sure you have the data. I think, you know, there might be a significant correlation with obesity and overweight. Um, and as that increases in the pediatric population dramatically, at least in the United States, as I'm sure some other developed countries, I, I think it's becoming more common. I certainly didn't see this as much when I was in my dermatology residency during my PEDS rotations, which was only seven years ago as I am now. <clears throat> but I think there's also more awareness. I think like it's yeah. people recognizing it more and making it, uh, I think, especially for pediatric patients, they just were kind of uh, 
diagnosed as infections when they were younger. And then as adults, they got diagnosed. So we were missing some of those early diagnoses. We know that obesity is the most common comorbidity that we see in these patients, but there are probably other drivers, genetics and other things that uh, drive this disease. Yeah, and I think obviously if drugs can help the disease, that drives some interest, although that can't be everything because, you know, we know from atopic dermatitis, devastating disease too, when it's severe, it was like, you know, an, in no man's land, when, when I, even when I was in residency not that long ago, and now there's all these therapeutics. So hopefully people are recognizing that there are targets that can drive discovery, but this one's going to be harder because it's not just going to be medicine. It's going to have to be also surgical and lifestyle together and Real and I don't think we have the right medication yet. I don't think Adeline. No, no, yet. not even close. No, no. I, I don't, don't think so. we have the right doses. I don't think that we have the right target. I think that there we're still missing part of it. It's not like psoriasis. Like psoriasis, like we have the right drugs and we use them and they work amazing. With HS, it's not the same. Well, it, it took time to get to where we are with psoriasis. That's why I'm hopeful for HS. I think, yeah. you know, like I said, I think it took a, a couple of, rounds of whack that mole to see which one goes down, which one pops back up again, figure out, I mean, you know, this is clearly an inflammatory process. I do believe there might be a genetic predisposition. I don't know if gene therapy is going to come sooner than some of the protein therapy that we have, um, or some of the cytokine blocking. I mean, this is, this is definitely something I think with what we know now, a treatable disease, we just don't have those treatments yet, but it is going to be multi, multi-factorial, like Dr. Kerkorian was saying, I think, you know, yeah. So what else do you think we should be doing as pediatric dermatologists to raise awareness? I don't know if you have thoughts about that. I was wondering about Google searches. At one point, I was thinking about doing a study trying to do like some Google search words, which I'm sure keywords, and I haven't searched PubMed, but I'm sure someone's done this. But I think if patients Google boil and armpit or groin, um, HS should come up rather than, you know, who knows what comes up. So that would be one thing. And then working with our ERs especially is, is critical. So I think getting the word out, um, whether that be presenting at ER conferences, pediatrics conferences, or just having that discussion, our ER actually does quite a good job. I mean, they very frequently diagnose HS and refer to us. Um, same with our surgeons, but we're at a specialized children's hospital and that's not necessarily the norm. So um, I think that would be some, some thoughts I had. Any other thoughts, Cece? Anything else we're not doing uh, well, that you do? You know, I was thinking there's always the double-edged sword of social media, which I know is kind of a hot topic, but I think I've seen some things on, on other conditions that people have and talk about as patient advocates on social media, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever those other ones I don't know about. Um, so I think, you know, if we can recruit or retain some patients who feel comfortable talking about the condition and getting it out there for not just, you know, our pediatricians in some of these larger hospitals, but our local pediatricians, um, you know, and and, uh, other specialties like endocrinologists that might be seeing some of these comorbidities, but not understanding that there's a germ component to some of them too. I think that that might help spread some of the awareness about this so that kids can get in sooner than later. And I think, you know, not to upset my other 90% of colleagues who are general dermatologists, but then also to make them aware that pediatric HS is a a real thing. I still work with providers that don't see HS in kids. And I'm like, no, you see it. You just don't actually see it. (laughs) They're not really putting two and two together often. 
Um, so I think, re, you know, establishing something at our national local meetings um, that are general dermatologists is also something, an important venue that we can address some of these things. Completely agree. I think we're still underdiagnosing and sometimes misdiagnosing and, and we need to continue to build that awareness to uh, have it in everybody's radar. Um, any other um, thoughts or anything else that uh, regarding management that we should be um, discussing? Yeah, I had a thought, which was, you know, I think we underutilize the surgical procedures. Um, Dr. Andrews mentioned this, you know, really nicely in his section, but I don't feel super comfortable doing um, unroofing procedures. We do have, luckily, Dr. Okoye is the chair of Howard and some people in D.C. who will do that. And of course, we have surgeons. Um, but I think it would be nice to see more data on surgical procedures in children because I think we are underutilizing them and therefore we're not getting the benefit we might get of our drugs. You know, if we have these tracks, we really, I just don't see how our drugs can work effectively in the setting of that chronic inflammatory biofilm stuff um, that you get a right sort of roto-rooter out. So if someone from our field took it on, it was just difficult because you know, procedures in children are different than procedures in adults, even adolescent children. And so it would be great if one of our procedural pedsderm, you know, got passionate about it, started doing these cases. We do have OR access, at least at our institution. So, you know, that doesn't have to be a barrier, which it might be like if you're talking about a 12 or 13 year old, but that is something that it would be great to see if that made a big impact. Yeah, and I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but like for us, uh, our plastic surgeons or general surgeons are not uh, comfortable managing many of these patients. So we sometimes make referrals and they are uh, sometimes rejected or other, other times they are seen, but then they don't know what to do. And it would be amazing to have guidance from uh, surgical experts to manage our pediatric patients as well. Um, so definitely we need a champion in this area. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing is the hormonal ter therapies. We talked about them a little bit, but you know, do we do should we max be maxing them out in the children? You know, like our OCP, spironolactone, non-hormonal treatments like metformin. I just feel a little lost as to when to implement. I, I mean, I feel comfortable with the OCPs and spironolactone, but less confident on the metabolic drugs, and so. Um, that would be helpful in a consensus guidelines. I think we would use it more when it was more clear, like what the dosing should be, what we should be screening for and so on. Um, because it, it would be great to do it in a multidisciplinary clinic and do it with peds endocrine. And that's something we might be able to do at a children's hospital, but most people are seeing a doctor not at a children's hospital. So we don't right. want to restrict these medications, you know, to the five people in children's hospitals. We really want right. it to be comfortable in the community. So I don't know, Izzy, if you have thoughts about that. No, and then that's, I think that's one of the, one of the hardest things for me going from uh, academic practice to private practice was um, getting access to some of these techniques and sort of building that dynamic uh, cohort of colleagues who can sort of assist in the areas that I can't, you know, continue or carry on a treatment. Um, I think one of the things that was interesting that you had said um, about getting other surgeons, plastic surgeons to, to kind of work on these kids, you know, it, it's frustrating and as a provider, sometimes I just want to throw something um, you know, it always amazes me how a surgeon will cut open anything except for HS. And I think a lot of time, again, going back to the same issue, which is education, they believe in their hearts that these are infectious boils. So again, just boiling it down to the simplest of education and, and sort of explaining 
to some of our colleagues is, is really where I think a lot of my focus is. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a tricky situation because it's hard. Obviously, it's very hard for the patients, very hard for the family. It's a very visceral condition. And so I think a lot of people just want to turn their back on that. Um, you know, putting these people, kids and adults at a severe, you know, societal disadvantage because they can't control this, these odors that are coming out of them. It's not like they can just take a shower and make this go away. Um, so I think really boiling this down to how much psychologically and socially this really impacts people is what we need to do to build, you know, a consensus amongst providers to get these kids and the help that they need. <clears throat> and I think you make a great point because it goes back to education. We also need to educate our uh, surgical colleagues on this disease just to make sure that they are also comfortable providing their care to patients and, and kind of not realizing that this is not uh, a bacterial infection and that <coughs> even if they intervene, this is not infectious in kind of its root. Um, so yeah, lots of education that we need to move forward with. We have a lot of work to do for sure. Lots of work to do. So I, I would really want to thank you for your time, putting this together and sharing your thoughts and experience with us. It has been great chatting with you and um, looking forward to more collaborations and education and research. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so very much to our session moderator, Dr. Irene Lara Corrales. And thank you so much to our guest speakers, Dr. Yasmin Kokorian and Dr. Izzy Andrews. To hear more points of discussion programming, be sure to subscribe to the Pedra Pearls podcast channel so you can receive automatic downloads. You can find us in Spotify, iTunes, and Google. You can also find more information about this and our other educational programs online at www.pedraresearch forward slash education. I would like to thank our sponsors for this program, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. PEDRA is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. Tune in next time. Thanks so much for listening.